the Medical School HQ podcast, session number 30. Hello and welcome back to another session of the Medical School HQ podcast, the podcast about medical school where we take you through the pre-med process, medical school, and even through residency. We're here to take your knowledge of becoming a physician to the next level. I'm your host, Ryan Gray. Today, we have an awesome guest for you, something that a lot of people have been asking for. We have Dr. Sagil. He is the Assistant Dean of Recruitment and Admissions at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences, also known as the Military Medical School. This is a school that is an allopathic medical school. You apply to it just like you would the majority of other allopathic schools through the AMCAS application, which is now open as of June 10th, 2013. The one major difference for this school is you actually get paid to go to medical school. The tuition is free, obviously, and you're getting paid as an active duty service member, which is kind of cool. So we cover a lot of information. We cover information about who should be thinking about applying to this school. We talk about careers in the military as a physician, things that come up a lot, deployments, other questions that the majority of students have when when it comes to being a military physician. So I talk about all that with Dr. Sagil. We start by talking about his path to military medicine. As far as I, I personally go, I actually went uh, to undergrad at Duke University on ROTC scholarship with the Army. And as I was finishing up my college career, I, know, I had known that I'd always, always wanted to go into medical practice. I had known that since I was in high school. And so was getting ready to apply for medical schools. And so looked at a bunch of different factors, applied to several different schools, and at that point, also looked at the Uniform Services University and also looked at the University of Florida. For me, the decision at that point came down to proximity to my family. I'd been away for a little bit. My family lived in Florida, wanted to be a little bit closer to them. And so I chose to go to the University of Florida on an HPSB scholarship. Went there four years, had a fantastic time. Really enjoyed the fact that uh, I was getting a stipend to attend medical school. Um, wasn't racking up uh, huge medical school debts. And because I already had the service obligation from ROTC and was already dedicated to potentially doing a career in the military, uh, for me, the Army part of it was just an added bonus. And so I enjoyed my training with the Army, enjoyed the opportunity to rotate at some of the hospitals that the Army has in its inventory. After that, went on to my family medicine residency at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Uh, spent three years there. Had a great time. It's really neat being in the national capital area. Also, uh, great training uh, at that hospital. And when the time came, your, your first job out of residency, you don't get all that many options. Uh, but among the options that I was offered, one of them was Germany. And so being a fairly young physician, uh, uh, young in my marriage, and also with very young kids at the same time, we thought Germany would be a blast. And so for two and a half years, just really, really enjoyed ourselves uh, in Germany. was taking care of a small community of about 2,000 people. Uh, along with uh, my physician assistants, nurses, and the rest of our healthcare team, and then had the opportunity to travel to, uh, let's see, we went to Italy, we went to Spain, England, the Czech Republic, just all over the place. 
But then after that, wanted very much to get back into full-scope family medicine. When I was in Germany, I was doing mostly ambulatory care, taking care of people in clinic. And I wanted to get back to doing inpatient care. I wanted to get back to doing obstetric care. I wanted to have uh, also some teaching responsibilities. And so I applied for and was accepted into our faculty development fellowship program out at Magan Army Medical Center in Fort Lewis, uh, Washington. Now it's a joint base, Lewis-McChord. And went there for, uh, again, two and a half years. Also earned my Master's of Public Health at the University of Washington at the same time. And just had a fabulous time uh, teaching residents, mentoring residents, advising residents, but also doing the inpatient medicine, doing the obstetric care, doing all the things that I had wanted to add on to my practice from Germany. After that, uh, we went to uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia. Uh, again, this is where we get, again, closer to the, the family. And while I was at Fort Gordon, uh, I had the opportunity to serve as a student coordinator for all of our medical students coming and rotating with us. Again, full-scope family medicine teaching residents, uh, but then also had the opportunity to serve as the uh, assistant program director, so seeing the leadership side of, of medical education. While I was in Georgia, that was my, I had the opportunity to take my first deployment, which was over to uh, Afghanistan. I uh, spent uh, 15 months over there. Um, as you can imagine, a little bit less of the full scope. <laughs> no, uh, not a whole lot of obstetrics over there, although we did deliver a baby while we were there. Um, not as much uh, in the way of the traditional inpatient medicine I saw, but we certainly took care of a lot of trauma patients uh, in our hospital. And a great experience also. It, very hard being away from family. I'd be happy to talk about that. Uh, but as far as professionally going, as far as being a physician goes, had the opportunity to do a lot of things that family physicians don't have as much of an opportunity to do in the States, was running trauma codes, was uh, putting in chest tubes, was uh, uh, putting in interosseous lines with the help of my orthopedic colleagues. Apparently, you have to push really, really, really hard to use the old uh, interosseous uh, devices. Um, intubations, we were doing uh, all those types of things over there. But then also teaching the Afghan National Security Forces, um, uh, some of the uh, precepts of Western medicine, prevent, uh, preventive health measures, and also working with uh, vaccination programs for the children in the villages and, and trying to project that medical presence uh, throughout the country. Came back to Fort Gordon at that point, and now uh, I'm stationed up in the, the Washington, D.C. area again. Uh, came on to the faculty uh, both at uh, Fort Belvoir, my old hospital, but also uh, at the Uniformed Services University, where now for the last uh, nine months I've been serving as the assistant dean for recruitment and admissions. So long roundabout story, uh, but that's that's how I got to where I am right now. That's that's an amazing story, and we can talk a little bit. Obviously, there's a ton of diversity in what you what you have done and what you continue to do, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more on the backside of medical school and what students going to the uniform, uh, Uniformed Services University could possibly expect. Um, but for, for, those, for those listening, you had mentioned you went to the University of Florida, which is amazing since I am a Gator also. Um, <laughs> it's always great to be a Gator. Yes, it is. Gator Nation strong. Uh, uh, the HPSP scholarship uh, for those listening that might not know what that is, I talked about it in an interview with an Air Force um, HPSP recruiter back in session 18. So you can find that at medicalschoolhq.net slash session 18. So you you went on an Army uh, scholarship. Yes. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Army, Navy, and Air Force all offer the scholarship. Uh, okay. So today I want to talk about the actual, uh, in lay terms, the military medical school. Mm-hmm. Where is that located? So our medical school is in Bethesda, Maryland. It's uh, roughly 10 to 12 miles outside of uh, Washington, D.C. 
it's within what they call the Capital Beltway. So we're part of the greater metro D.C. land, as it were, to a little bit just to the north of the nation's capital. Okay. And it's a a medical school, correct? A lot of people think that maybe it's not really a medical school. It's just kind of something where you go get uh, a funky diploma from the government that lets you practice medicine only when you're uh, in in the military, but it's a full-on, fully accredited medical school. That's right. So as far as uh, medical schools go, uh, unfortunately, for those who uh, maybe thought otherwise, you can't send in a certain number of box tops from your favorite cereal to get a degree uh, from our university. <laughs> we're an allopathic medical school. We've been around for over 40 years. Uh, we were conceived uh, by an act of Congress in uh, 1972. Uh, just this last year, actually, as a matter of fact, uh, two weeks ago now, so we're talking here on February 29th, I believe it is, uh, two weeks ago, we just graduated our 5,000th uh, medical physician, so MD, uh, from the university. We're on the same campus as uh, Waltry National Military Medical Center, which is our tertiary care hospital. And in addition to the assets we have here in D.C., we pull on our medical assets all over the United States and all around the world. So, yes, definitely a four-year allopathic degree granting institution licensed by the LCME, which is the accrediting body for all medical schools uh, in the United States and also in Canada as well. Okay. So uh, a normal medical school, and it, you mentioned allopathic. For those those listening, allopathic is, is MD versus osteopathic for DO. The the school. How do you how do you get into the school? Is it through the same uh, AMCAS application that all or almost all allopathic schools are on? That's correct. So on to apply to our school, you go through the AMCAS application, which is the common application for medical schools. And uh, one of the things I can say about the application is unlike the other schools, we actually don't charge people uh, to apply to our school, nor do we charge people for the secondary application that most medical schools require when you try to gain entrance into their institutions. That's nice. So it's almost like a, a freebie. As it were, absolutely. Now, that being said, if you have no desire whatsoever to practice military medicine, if the idea of the military makes you run away screaming, <laughs> maybe not the best idea. But if you look into it a little bit and you like the idea of a service-oriented lifestyle, if you like the idea of being part of something bigger than yourself, if you like the idea of serving just some of the best patients in the whole wide world, then I think uh, we and uh, at the Uniformed Services University and certainly the HPSB program have something to offer people. Okay, so let's talk about that for a little bit. Let's, uh, let's talk about the types of students that uh, ideally you would like to see applying to the, the Uniformed Services University and... and what students possibly, the applicants, should be thinking about or maybe who should they be reaching out to to find out a little bit more if they would like a career in the military? Sure. So as far as the the mix of students, let me talk about that before I talk about the type. Roughly one-third of our students have some type of prior association with the military, whether that's they went through ROTC, which is the Undergraduate Scholarship Program, or maybe they went to one of the service academies, or maybe they were actually in the military previously. 65% of our students, though, two-thirds of our class, actually don't have that prior military experience. So we take from all walks of life. The common thread, though, among both of those groups of students is service. And so, like other medical schools, we certainly want you to have some shadowing experience. We want for you to present us with a good, strong clinical letter of recommendation from a physician or other healthcare worker. 
But one of the things that our school looks for that maybe is a little different from other medical schools is we're really looking for somebody who has devoted a good portion of their undergraduate career and a good portion of their, of their life to serving others. And that service can take multiple different forms. Maybe you volunteered at a hospital. Maybe you volunteered as an emergency medical technician. But then maybe you also uh, volunteered with uh, Habitat for Humanity with uh, one of your service fraternities at your school. We want for people to come to our school demonstrating that they care about something other than themselves. Okay. So it, it's kind of interesting because the the thought of military and the thought of service is obviously strong, but it, when I personally think of being a physician, that's that's also service. So it's almost along the same lines. Correct. I, I think that I think that's a astute um, statement. It's it's interesting to see the applications that come through, and we read every single one that we receive here at the university. And you, I think people would be surprised at how some applications really resonate with the idea of of giving back to their community, of giving back to others, and then others don't have that same ring to them. I think some people look at medicine simply from the standpoint of an intellectual challenge. Um, some people look at uh, medicine from the standpoint of the prestige and the status that goes along with being a physician, and those aren't bad things. Those are those are those are nice uh, to have, but they're not uh, they're not sufficient. I, again, I, I think really letting that service orientation come through in the application materials is what allows an applicant to stand out for us. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense, and I think for for anybody listening, whether they they go into the military or not, that that sense of service and, and the desire to uh, help others, I think, is is what gets you through the long days and the long nights of, of residency and medical school, and it helps. Oh. I think so. I think that uh, if you were to look at the statistics, it's always interesting to read the studies about practicing professionals. The rate of burnout among physicians is incredibly high. It's even higher among primary care, which is where I and both uh, you work as well. And you're absolutely right. There has to be something that gets you out of bed in the morning. And if you're doing it for prestige, if you're doing it for status, I don't know that that's enough. You're basically committing yourself to at least four years of medical school, at least three years or maybe two years of a residency program. And then however many years uh, it takes you to the point where you want to eventually retire or seek another job, that's a huge uh, investment of your life. And so you've got to have something that pulls you out of the bed every morning, something hopefully that helps you to wake up with a smile on your face and a, a can-do uh, attitude in your step. And I think that service orientation is what it is for physicians. Yeah, not not just the, the BMW. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've never, ever driven a BMW in my life. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, so I always joke about the BMW and dermatologists, but... <clears throat> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so let's let's talk about medical school life at, at Uniformed Services University. It, sure. What is, how would you compare it to a quote-unquote normal civilian medical school? So the way we've uh, set up our medical education program here at the university, we actually have it broken down into an 18-12-18 system. Pre-clerkship, the time when you're doing the basic sciences, last over, last or, uh, for 18 months, and they're organized around body system. We do a mixture of lectures, which can either be attended in class or streamed live to wherever you learn best, whether that's at home, in your bed, or maybe at a Starbucks or a Caribou Coffee. 
and then, uh, or you're welcome to send in on a class. And then we do uh, mandatory small groups so that uh, groups of students from anywhere between 4 to 12 in size can process the information, help each other to master it. Then, in, a, in addition to that, uh, after that, we have the 12 months where you spend your time in the clinical rotations. And with those clinical rotations, you are going not only to the places here in the Washington, D.C. area, but you're actually having the opportunity to travel to Hawaii, to Washington State, to Texas, to Florida to do clinical rotations at our military treatment facilities with our, actually, with our actual residency faculty. So the people that can teach you best about family medicine, the people that can teach you best about psychiatry, OBGYN, surgery, and, and, and whatnot. And then during the last year, the 18 months where you have an opportunity to prepare yourself for your eventual residency, you can either travel to the same spots over the United States or all, all over the world. A typical day for a medical student really looks like a, a medical student at almost any other uh, medical school or university. You do wear a uniform every day, so we are the one school that can guarantee you'll have an opportunity to wear polyester for your country, which is very important. Uh, it doesn't tend to breathe as well as cotton, but you do okay. Uh, but we will not do things like wake you up at 5 o'clock in the morning for mandatory formation. We, we, don't, we don't do that. We don't make you do mandatory physical training. Uh, you are here to be a student. And our students live off campus. They live in the D.C. area. They live in uh, Bethesda. They live in, in Rockville and other places. And when they come to university, they're fully here to learn. And the great news about it is that they don't have to worry about student debt because uh, the school is tuition-free and they're getting paid $57,000 a year to live and eat and to study in the D.C. area. Now that's not bad. Ex- explain that $57,000 a year. Is that like housing allowances and, and other things? Correct. So the students that come to our university are actually commissioned as active duty officers. So if you're in, in the Navy or the Public Health Service, you're an ensign. If you're in the Army or the Air Force, you're a second lieutenant. And you earn the pay associated with that rank while you're at the university. So currently, it's roughly about $57,000 if you don't have a spouse or, or children. If you do, you're making roughly about 60000 Part of that money is your base salary, which is taxed, but also part of it is your basic allowance for housing, which I think right now is running at roughly a total of twenty-four dollars to $26,000 of that per year. And that part's not taxed. So um, if you consider the tax advantages, it actually bumps up the, the net pay just a little bit more than you would expect. Okay. That's that's awesome. So you get paid to go to school. Correct. You get you get paid to go to school. <laughs> one, one of the nice things about the HPSB scholarship is that you also get paid to go to school with them as well. Um, our, our, because we give a full salary, we're just a little bit more generous, but mm. certainly in both ways, are, are it's, it's nice to not have to eat ramen noodles every single night while you're a medical student. That is definitely key because good nutrition helps with your memory, so it makes you a better doctor. <laughs> And and one thing for, for those out there deciding between the Uniformed Services University and possibly the HPSP scholarship, HPSP, because it it's a fixed stipend that, that adjusts with inflation every year, possibly, it your dollar stretches only as much as your cost of living for where you are. So for myself, I went to, to school right outside of New York City, high cost of living, my mm-hmm. stipend didn't go very far. Mm-hmm. I, I know other people that on the on the HPSP scholarship were in the Midwest where they were putting money away in, in retirement accounts and, and living <laughs> large with their stipend, the same amount of money. So that's something to think about. Sure enough. You know, honestly, the advice I would give to somebody that's looking at HPSP and the Uniformed Services University, if you know that that route works for you, 
that you're interested in military medicine, or at the very least, you are looking for a service-oriented field within medicine, you need financial assistance to attend medical school, and the military is, for whatever reason, appealing to you, whether you had a family member in the military, whether you had a, a nascent idea that you would like to serve, and as you get closer to having to think about how you're going to fund medical school, the idea of the military becomes more and more appealing. Whatever brings you here in the first place, if you're going to apply to one program, I'd strongly uh, encourage somebody to apply to both. Uh, we, we let all of our applicants to the Uniformed Services University know that each year, we only bring in roughly 63 Army physicians. We only bring in roughly 52 uh, physicians for the Navy and the Air Force, and only four for the Public Health Service. Um, the HPSP programs, on the other hand, are bringing in over 200 for each of those branches, Army, Navy, and the Air Force. And so I think if you're someone that wants to be a medical student who wants to go on to military service, who wants to have financial assistance, it, it is in your best interest to apply for both, both programs. Okay. Most most students that are applying to medical school, and we'll talk specifically about the Uniform Services University, if they're applying to you, they, they may have a desire for a career in the military. They might not. They might, they might just want free medical school, and they like the fact that they're going to give to the military, give, give to their government for however many years that they need to, and then get out and practice. And... Most of them have an idea of what types of practices they want to do. Are there any restrictions if, if a student comes to the universe, uh, Uniformed Services University? Are there any restrictions on specialties that they can practice or, or residencies they can do? Sure, that's a great question. It's a good question to ask up front. And the answer is no, there's no restrictions on the residencies that are offered. The, the neat thing about the military is that roughly every year we have about 800 graduating students between the Uniformed Services University and the HPSB program. As it turns out, we have roughly the same number of spots in residency programs uh, in our military graduate medical education system. So the, in the civilian side, there's the graduate medical education system, the, the residencies, so-called, that usually are filled through the National uh, Residency Matching Program. In the military, we run a, a, uh, a parallel process where we also do our own matching program, and so students compete for these military training slots. Um, some of the services do it a little bit differently. Uh, the Air Force actually not only utilizes the military system, but it also utilizes the civilian system. One of the nice things about being at USHUs or at being in the HPSP program is that you're guaranteed an internship. Last year, 1,100 students didn't match in the civilian matching program. And even after the SOAP or the, the formerly known scramble, there were still 500 people left out, which means those are 500 people that have accumulated the debt associated with medical school that aren't going to be able to practice as doctors to pay down that debt. It doesn't happen in the military matching system. Each one of our graduates gets one of those spots. As far as choosing what they go into, there's no restriction on what military uh, students, uh, what residencies they apply for. You can apply for family medicine or dermatology or radiology or obstetrics and gynecology or surgery. You can apply for the full gamut of residencies. And we also offer the opportunity to uh, subspecialize should somebody want to do that. We offer sports medicine. We offer cardiology. We offer colorectal surgery. We offer those subspecialties that sometimes drive people a little bit further 
into their training as well. So, so no restrictions. And never at any point will you be forced by the military to take a residency that you don't want. Never will we say to a budding orthopedist, no, we really, really are going to force you to become a pediatrician. We're just not going to do that. It's not, good, uh, it's not a good match for, for either the student or for the residency program. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the biggest questions that comes up when I talk to people about the HPSP program is is that that exact question, are they going to force me to do something I don't want to do? That Correct. in in kind of a, a similar uh offshoot of that, there there is the GMO spot. Can you explain how somebody ends up in a GMO spot? Sure. That's a, that's a good one. there's two types of people that end up in a GMO spot. Uh, the first type is somebody that really, really wants to do those specific GMO jobs. So GMO stands for General Medical Officer. These are people that have done a one-year internship. So maybe it was in a family medicine residency or in a general surgery residency, or maybe it was in a what we call a transitional year internship, which is a general medical surgical internship. After completing that one year, they're uh, licensed as physicians, and those people will go on to serve in some pretty cool jobs. They might be a fleet surgeon for the Navy or a flight surgeon for the Air Force or maybe a, work with a, uh, a brigade or a battalion with the Army. And those are the types of jobs where you get to, you know, for lack of a better phrase, sow your wild medical oats. Do the really cool thing that people, things that people go into the military to do, take care of soldiers, sailors, airmen, uh, and Marines. After uh, a certain amount of time as a GMO, so maybe during your first year or your second year, or depending on how much you like it, you may wait for three or four years, you can reapply for the residency of your choice. And one of the nice things is that your GMO time actually gives you credit towards getting your residency program, which means that you have an even better chance of getting that residency that, that you desire after serving as a GMO. Second type of person that does a GMO job is somebody that didn't get their first choice residency right out of medical school. And so what they'll do is instead of committing to a residency they maybe are less interested in, they'll do a one-year internship, serve as a GMO, and then keep applying until they eventually get that orthopedic uh, residency or until they eventually get that other competitive residency that wasn't available for them the first time. Um, I'm, I, you know, I, you hate to make generalizations, but of the people that I've talked to, um, they have enjoyed those GMO experiences just because they felt that when they came back to residency, they knew what they were training for because they had served with the people they're eventually uh, going to uh, going to take care of. Yeah, and, and obviously I am one of those GMO uh, situations where I, I applied to orthopedics, didn't get in, did my one-year transitional year, reapplied, didn't get in, and they said, okay, you're going to be a flight surgeon. And and part of my job here is to educate students going through this process. And I wasn't educated. I, what the heck's a flight surgeon? And uh, I think part of the uh, the not I don't want to say problem, but part of the issue with students going into flight medicine or or that GMO job is the the fear of the unknown. And yeah. and hopefully, what we can do better with HPSP students and obviously Uniformed Services University students is is inform them that there is this chance that you're going to be a GMO. You might be a flight surgeon, but you get to go fly F-16s and travel the world and and do all this is cool stuff. And then you'll have the rest of your life to practice emergency medicine or whatever else you want to do. I think you make a really good point there. And if I can just expand on it for a little bit, I think that people that tend to succeed in the military, honestly, 
um, and this might be just for life in general, are the people that, um, number one, are, are, have a, a certain amount of flexibility uh, and a certain amount of optimism. If, if you're the type of person that always feels that things are done to you, the military is going to be a really, really hard place to thrive because the military will frequently give you the opportunity to feel like something's being done to you. If, on the other hand, you're more of an optimist and look at situations and say, you know what, I can make this be what I need for it to be. Um, I think that's, uh, at least in my mind, the definition of an optimist is the, the feel of mastery of your situ- over your situation. If you can bring that optimism and blend it with flexibility, I think that you will find that most things that the, the military um, offers to you become true, just true opportunities. Uh, friends of mine that have uh, ended up in, in the GMO land or maybe have chosen their second choice specialty um, have at least for me, almost universally said, wow, I didn't realize what a great opportunity that was at the time. And that's really has played out in my career as well. The job I had in Germany was not the job that I wanted, uh, but it was exactly the job I needed. It gave me an opportunity to grow leaps and bounds beyond what I would have been otherwise. Yeah, I think that's a, a great statement, not just for the military, but life in general. Um, let's talk about life after medical school and life after residency. What kind of... Uh, job opportunities, career opportunities are there? Obviously, students are working in their profession, but what what types of facilities might they be working in and what kind of growth beyond practicing medicine is there for the military? Sure. So as far as the the tracks for a military uh, medical officer, there's traditionally five that we look at. So there's the clinical track where you either work in large hospitals or small community (laughs) settings. There is also the operational track, which is a military unique function. This is when you work with the flight units or the, uh, the infantry units or the armor units or uh, perhaps the, the fleet uh, units that are out there. So that's the second track. The third track is you have the opportunity for an executive uh, position. So you can potentially make your way through as a clinic commander, a department chief, eventually on to a hospital commander, and then into the policy-making branches of the uh, military medicine um, system. And then there's also the academic uh, track where you're, you're teaching either at a residency program or maybe at our physician assistant program or maybe at our medical school. And then a research track as well where we're doing both basic science research um, and also we're working in clinical research, working with uh, malaria, HIV, uh, emerging infectious diseases, neurodegenerative research, and the like. So those are the five traditional tracks, clinical, operational, executive, academic, uh, and research. And then as far as where you can practice, the military is spread all throughout the United States and all throughout the world. And so depending on how far you've chosen to subspecialize, you could either work at a uh, community clinic type setting, so taking care of a panel of patients in a, in, a, in a clinic. You can work at a community hospital setting where you have the various specialties represented, uh, but in a smaller um, a hospital um, type installation. And then you can work in a tertiary care facility, which is typified by places like the, the San Antonio Military Medical Center, which is a joint concern between the Air Force and the Army, or the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, which is a tri-service, actually quad-service if you consider the public health service um, officers that we have here as well. And so you have the full gamut there. And then, of course, if you're doing the more operational side, you, you could be the physician working with a with a flight unit uh, where you have your own clinic and you set up your own 
uh, hours and you, you take care of the people that are assigned to you uh, or uh, a brigade clinic or an aviation clinic or whatever um, other flavor uh, you choose. So those are the, the, the different career tracks and those are the different options. Some people stay very clinical their entire years. Some people decide to reinvent themselves. And the neat thing about the military is uh, typically we tend to move every three to four years on average. And every time we move, we have the opportunity to redefine ourselves and the type of practice that we'll have. One of the the aspects of military medicine that that most people have a question about are deployments and will I have to deploy and what's that like and what happens to my family? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. As far as deployments go, the way I usually counsel people to think about it is that if a if a deployment is a is a deal breaker, then the military is is certainly not for you. Some people. Uh, pursue the HPSB scholarship. Some people pursue the uh, Uniformed Services University, thinking that they're going to they're going to go into such a specialized field of medicine, or they're going to start this this research type of career that's going to be such that it obviates or precludes the possibility of deployment for them. If somebody's thinking that, the military is really not the way to go. On average, and this depends by specialty, by geographic location, and by seniority. A military physician is going to deploy roughly every three to four years. At least that's the way it seemed to work during the time when we were in the, uh, glo- the global wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now that Afghanistan's uh, drawing down, now that, now that Iraq has officially uh, ended, um, that deployment rate seems to be spacing out even further. But about every three to four years, and depending on what service you're in, the lengths of the, those deployments are going to vary. The Army right now goes up to a maximum of nine months in a deployment, the Navy tends to be tied to the schedule of the ship tours. So those are about six to seven months, although it can vary. And then from what I've seen of my Air Force colleagues, the, the deployments seem to be about three to six months in length. They can certainly be sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. I think that's on average. Um, the longest that I've seen deployments last, at least this is, this is what ended up happening to me in Afghanistan, was, was 15 months. That was an extraordinary circumstance, though. This was in 2007 and 2008 when we were surging in Iraq. We just we didn't have enough uh, people to go around, and so uh, we were all extended uh, from a 12-month tour to a 15-month tour. The military recognizes the strain that puts on families, and so as a result of that, the, the shorter tour, tour lengths have been instituted. Okay. Yeah, I think it, for the Air Force, it's been about six months, so right on spot there. But then the... The, the the question is always what what happens to my family or or what if maybe um, it's a, a single parent and you're tasked to deploy what happens then? Good question. So one of the things that the military is is really really big on is the idea of the family readiness plan. Um, of course, the military loves its acronyms, so that's also known as the FRP. And so in the event that you deploy, should you uh, have a spouse? Um, it's expected that that spouse obviously is going to take care of the children. If you're a single parent, the military wants for you to have a plan such that should you deploy, and it's always a matter of, of when as opposed to if, someone is going to be there to take care of your children. So this is usually when you call upon your parents um, or um, uh, your, your, your siblings to, to take care of your children for you. Um, not being married and not having an alternative to taking care of your family is not going to preclude the military from deploying you. And these are the things to think about before you, you sign up for the, for the military lifestyle. One of the nice things, though, is that because of the military, we expect each other to deploy, is that when a physician deploys, 
inevitably the other physicians in the same practice or in the same hospital um, just go all out to take care of that family while you're away. When I was away, my boss would frequently invite my wife over to her house and to bring the kids over. She had a swimming pool. We didn't. So they could come and enjoy a day at the house swimming. And invariably, she would bring the kids inside, kick my wife out, and tell her not to come back for the rest of the day so that my wife could have a little bit of sandy while I was gone. That same boss also organized a monthly um, get-togethers for the whole department where my kids would be whisked away by my fellow physicians and their spouses, and my wife would have the opportunity for adult conversation. Um, my one son uh, had uh, lacerated his leg somehow while I was deployed, and so uh, one physician, a uh, friend of mine, put in stitches for him uh, on his couch <laughs> when my <laughs> wife brought him over, and another physician friend uh, took the stitches out on his couch <laughs> when it was time uh, for them to cut out. So um, you definitely have to consider the effect on your family. I will say this, though, that the, the, the people in the military go all out to make it as uh, tenable um, as possible for your family while you're away. That's one of the nice things about the military is that people pull together and they take care of each other. Yeah, and I've definitely seen that in my, my time as in active duty. Let's talk about the meat and potatoes that most pre-med kids uh, look over and over and over, and that's the statistics. Do you have some general numbers that you can give the, the sure. listeners about at how competitive it is to get into the, the medical school there, what kind of GPA and MCAT you're looking for? Sure. So as, as far as our medical school goes, we have roughly 3,000 applications each year. Um, of those 3,000 applications, about anywhere between 570 to 600 students are going to be invited for an interview. Uh, of those interviews, we're going to admit a class of 171 people, and that's our that's our congressionally mandated size. So every year, it's 171, or really, really close. As far as the GPA, uh, the competitive applicant will have a, a GPA that's in excess of 3.0. The most competitive applicant will have a GPA in excess of 3.5. Our average is 3.5. The spread of GPAs that were admitted last year was anywhere between 3.1 to 4.0. And we look favorably upon post-bac work. So perhaps you had an undergraduate GPA that was 2.8, but that's when you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do. And let's face it, you went to college for the first time in the freshman year, you don't recall most of it. It happens. But you got your head on straight, you had a couple years to mature, and then you went out and you did post-bac work and you did well in that we will actually let your post-bac work stand in lieu of your time um, as an undergraduate. So uh, you're not out of the running if you have an undergraduate GPA of 2.8 if you've gone and shown us that you can handle um, advanced uh, science work with a post-bac uh, program. Okay. And let me just stop you quickly there, for sure. again, for those listening that, that might not know how the AMCAS system works. Typically, post-bac is lumped together with your undergrad work, so it's all blended together, and and you look at one number, but you're you're splitting it off and looking at it, so that that could help a lot of people. Sure, sure, absolutely. And the nice thing about AMCAS is that even though you're absolutely right, it does mix all those numbers together into a cumulative GPA. They will also give us a line where they report the post back uh, GPA separately, so that's really really helpful uh, to us. As far as the MCAT goes, uh, again, the average that we had last year was 31. Our spread was 27 to 41 in the class that we're bringing in this upcoming year. And so that range allows us to not only focus on the metrics of the people applying to medical school, 
but also to weigh their attributes, uh, integrity, um, selfless service, the values that we hold dear in the military, and also their experiences, the distance traveled. Uh, perhaps uh, they um, had a hard time maintaining that GPA because they were working 40 hours a week to put themselves through college, or perhaps they came from a, a single-parent family where they were still providing support to siblings or to even a parent back home. We take those metrics and we place them in balance against those experiences and tributes that we think enrich the class and make for a better, better medical learning experience. That sounds great. Do you have any final words of wisdom for those that might be looking into a career in the military and looking at the Uniform Services University? Yeah, I think the words I'll leave you with are something that my um, that my boss said for number one, and then also just a couple of things that some of our former presidents have said. My boss has said to me, and I think this is right, that the military is not for everyone, but it's probably right for more people than, than those that would already consider it. it. It's probably more right for more people to know it. Um, it's one of those things when you investigate it a little bit, when you talk to the people wearing the uniform, you say, you know what, I, I could see myself doing this. So even though it's not for everyone, it's probably right for more people than think it is. And then uh, number two, uh, two of the quotes that I really, really like, and I, I won't try to do them right now because I'm sure I'll, I'll butcher them horribly. Um, one is a tribute to uh, Abraham Lincoln during his second inaugural address he talked about the people that bind the nation's wounds, that uh, take care of the, of the wounded and their widow and their orphan, too. And part of being a military physician is, is, is living up to that legacy that uh, Lincoln and that generation left us. But then also it's living up to the legacy that John F. Kennedy left to us as well. The, the speech where he talks about uh, asking not what your country can do for you, the part that goes before that just talks about how um, each generation is, is faced with a challenge, and the question is whether people will rise to that challenge. And I think the neat thing about being in the military uh, and being a military physician is that you are the person that, that binds the wounds, uh, that takes care of the widow and the orphan, too, that you are the person that answers that call, and that you're one of those people that, at the end of the day, can say, you know what, I didn't ask what my country could do for me, but I did what I could uh, for my country, and by doing it for my country, I was that light uh, for the rest of the world as well. So um, if I had to leave you with words, I, I won't use my own. I'll, I'll leave you with uh, those very inspirational quotes from our former presidents. All right, folks, that was Dr. Sigil. A ton of great information. I hope you all got something useful out of it. If you have been thinking about the military as a career and also to pay for medical school, there's there's obviously a couple of routes you can apply to the military medical school or you have the HPSP scholarship and Dr. Segal even mentioned if you're thinking about one or the other then you should probably think about both and that's just the gives you the opportunity and gives you more choices and more more opportunity honestly to get into school if you're not accepted into one you may be accepted into the other so Keep your choices open. I loved what he said about being in the military. The, the majority of people that do well in the, in the military as well as in life in general, the ones that are flexible and kind of take everything and are able to adjust and be optimistic with it. So hopefully if you've been thinking about the military, you got some good information, you can take this information and, and go talk to the recruiter or go go look at the prospective student information on the website. That website is 
usuhs.mil.mil. If you have any questions for us, remember there's three great ways to keep in contact with us. We're on Twitter. Our handle on Twitter is at MedicalSchoolHQ. You can email us, feedback at MedicalSchoolHQ.net. Or you can go to the show notes for this page, MedicalSchoolHQ.net slash session 30. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, you're already on those show notes. If you're listening to this on the website, did you know that you can take this podcast with you on the go? If you have an iPhone, Apple has an app called the Podcast app, and you download the Podcast app and you search for Medical School HQ and subscribe to us in there. Every time we release a new episode, your, your phone will automatically download that new episode and keep you up to date. If you're on an Android you can use an app called Double Twist, and they're at doubletwist.com to subscribe and, and download all our shows. So there are more options than just listening on the website. It makes it a little more convenient and makes it easier to stay up to date. That's all I have for you today. I hope you join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters.